There are 2,500,000 gigabytes of storage space in your brain. If you laid out the blood vessels of the brain end to end, they would stretch about 120,000 miles, which is about halfway to the moon. A piece of brain tissue about the size of a grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons and 1 billion synapses, all communicating with each other. In fact, if you take the brain as a whole, there are about the same number of neurons in the brain as there are stars in the Milky Way. Every minute, 750 to 1,000 milliliters of blood flows through your brain. And your brain can process an image which your eyes have seen for just 13 milliseconds. That's less time than it takes to blink. Your brain enables you to think, to learn, to create, to feel emotions. It controls your every blink, every breath, every heartbeat. But your brain is also extremely delicate and sensitive. And so it requires maximum protection. Now our heads start that job with a tough skull. And within that there are three membranes, strong membranes. They're called the meninges and they are filled with a cushioning fluid that helps to protect the brain from the bone of the skull itself. But it makes sense to protect your brain. After all, damage here can be irreversible. So whether you're strapping your two-year-old into a tiny helmet as they set off on a scooter for the first time, or whether you're putting on your helmet as you go off racing on your Harley Davidson, it's key for protection to wear a helmet. And if you were going into battle, well, of course you'd wear a helmet, right? Tonight, uh, as part of our series on the armor of God, I've been asked to speak to you on five words, which are take the helmet of salvation. Um, we're going to just talk a little bit about what that helmet image means and what salvation is. And then I'm going to ask us whether we are really wearing the helmet of salvation and if we're really living it. Now, when Claire spoke a few weeks ago, Claire, um, on the breastplate of righteousness, she referenced this teacher, this teacher, this t-shirt, sorry, which amused me a lot. And the t-shirt read, there are too many Christians going around streaking. They're wearing the helmet of salvation and nothing else. Which I thought was great. Um, so we're going to reference that at the end. We're going to come back to that because we don't want any streaking here tonight. But I also want to suggest that there are too many of us going into battle with our salvation tucked away safely on a shelf somewhere. And we need to strap it on. Because a good soldier knows it is essential battle wear. We too need to fully grasp and live under the life-saving affirmation of our salvation. Let's dive in. A military helmet serves two functions. Um, The first is protective, obviously. The other is as an identifier. Now, this is an image of the latest um, helmet issued to the British Army. State-of-the-art technology, it's bulletproof. I was amused to note the label that points out Velcro. 
And I thought, how can such state-of-the-art technology have Velcro involved? Um, but actually, can you see here on the right, it says the Velcro is there, so a British soldier can attach the British flag to his helmet. It serves as an identifier. Another good example of this is from the English Civil War, when uh, not just the sides that a soldier was fighting on, but also the very values of those two sides were demonstrated by the helmets. You had the pragmatic Republicans, the round heads, and the flamboyant kingsmen, the cavaliers. So my question is, whose helmet are you wearing? And by helmet, I mean the thing that is protecting you, your protection, your security, and your identity. What have you got protecting the seat of all your thoughts, your wisdom, the base of all your emotions and actions and reactions? God offers us the helmet of salvation. And it's a free gift. And we can see that from the way Paul uses the word take in the phrase, take the helmet of salvation. But salvation is perhaps a little bit of Christian jargon. So let's just unpack it a little bit. Put most simply, I think, it is the way, the mechanism by which God breaks down the barriers which exist between us and him. That ought to be impossible since he is a pure, holy, perfect, almighty God. And we are us. Little humans, fallible, flawed, failing continuously. Sin is what gets in the way between us and God. Um, Sometimes it's hard to picture what that sin really means and, and why it is a barrier. So I best heard it put like this. Imagine you get to the end of your life, you're at the gates of heaven, you meet God. God says, great, we're just going to watch a DVD of your life and it's going to show us everything you ever did. And it's an enhanced DVD, so it's got everything you ever said in front of people and behind their backs. And it's also going to show us everything you ever thought. And not just us, but all your friends and family are going to watch too. Let's get the popcorn. That stuff, that stuff that you feel ashamed of, that is what the Bible calls sin. And that is what makes a barrier between us and a holy God. Now in the Old Testament, there was a whole series of sacrifices and ritual cleansing that allowed some of those barriers to be broken down. In the New Testament, there is one sacrifice once and for all, and that is Jesus. Paul puts it like this. Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace... All are put right with him through Christ Jesus, who sets them free. God offered him so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven, through their faith in him. In other words, our sins are wiped away on the cross of Jesus. That is salvation. That's like the how, if you like. There's another question, I think, which is why? Like, why does God even bother? Why does Jesus do it? That, I think, is summed up beautifully in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. What kind of love are we talking about? A cutesy kind of hold a baby girl and say, oh, isn't she lovely? No, it's nothing like that. It's this powerful, furious, phenomenal kind of love, so strong that Jesus would choose to die for you as you are. A love that says there is nothing you could do that would ever make him love you more and nothing you could do that would ever make him love you less. So salvation, is it just a a free ticket to heaven like a free pass? No, it's far more than that. And I would argue when Paul says we take the helmet of salvation, he means more that we need to live under the realization that a holy God would sacrifice himself in order to have relationship with you. You see, the thing about salvation is that it isn't just wiping away our sin. It's restoring us to the relationship between us and God that God really wants. And the Bible tells us that's a relationship between a father and a son. We are given sonship. We are beloved children of God. Now, when you see the helmet of salvation like that, I think we can begin to see how it would help us to stand firm. Let me give you a human example. I was lucky enough to be brought up by two wonderful parents. You know that. You know them. They're here. The most important thing I think they did for me was to show me that I was loved. I imbibed that as a child. I never doubted it as a teenager, even in difficult moments. And as a young adult, when I moved away and went to uni, and I'd have phone conversations with my parents, both my mum and my dad would end the conversation saying at least once, often many times, I love you. The point I want to make is that it is profoundly stabilizing to know that you are beloved. It's profoundly stabilizing to know that you are beloved. We're not all as blessed like that in our experiences of love. And it can be hard to know what is meant by God's love because the world misuses and abuses the word love. And the world sometimes uses the word love to cover all sorts of things that are not love. God wants to break through that. In the action of opening out his arms and dying on the cross, Jesus speaks over every single one of us. The life-giving affirmation that you are a beloved child of God. Even the very best kind of earthly love actually only holds up a very small and imperfect mirror to the perfect love of God. And in that perfect love, in salvation, what's amazing is that it perfects us too. That's what we could never earn or deserve. And on that note... Something we've got to clear up about the love of God. There is no favoritism in the love of God. You see, in our earthly understanding of love, it would make perfect sense if God loved Mark or Clive or Pippa more than the rest of us. But actually, God's love doesn't work like that. He loves us equally. The phenomenal equalizing power of the cross makes us all equals before Christ and equals alongside one another. And when we grasp that he loves us as much as Mark or Clive or Pippa, 
Because his love is not ever about what we have done or deserve, but about how he lavishes undeserved love and freedom and grace upon us. Then we might start to better understand our own self-worth. Our self-worth has been measured. And it's worth the life of the Son of God. That's how much God says we are worth. So my prayer tonight for you is that you would have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep is Christ's love. Yet may you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known, and so be completely filled with the very nature of God. So, if that's the helmet of salvation, are we really wearing it? Not, have you accepted Jesus? Yes, tick, tick that box, good. No, are you really wearing the helmet of salvation? Because I'd argue with that t-shirt about Christian streakers, or at least put on the back of it, that there are too many of us faithfully walking around with some clunky pieces of spiritual armour and a loyal attendance at committee meetings, and we're well tithed and we're heavily invested in rotors, but we haven't even begun to grasp the scale of the love of God and how that love is poured down upon our heads. We've got a helmet, sure, we've got it, but we've tucked it away on a shelf somewhere and got on with the business of being a Christian. We've got a helmet, but we're not wearing it in our daily battles. And the problem with that approach is that when you're faced with the battles of this life, we're not protected by that quiet, steadfast surety of really knowing that you are God's beloved children, bought by the blood of Christ, and we're liable to crumble. What are the battles that you face? Paul is saying the helmet of salvation protects us from the slings and arrows of life. What could that be? It could be the passive-aggressive comments from a co-worker or a friend. It could be the subtle undermining that you feel. It can be the more tangible battles of financial insecurity, health scares. It could be the headshots of this life, our most frightening battles, when we think we're going to lose our sense of ourself, lose our way, or lose someone that we love. (coughs) What is your helmet? If your helmet, your protection, your identity, your security is bound up in popularity, it'll wane. Your looks, they'll fade. Your wealth, it can be squandered. Your job title, you'll retire. Your relationship, they can fail. If you're holding on to anything else than when the headshots come, you are massively underprotected where it matters most. The root of your reasoning your emotions, your control. But if you're wearing that helmet of salvation, daily living in an attempt to grasp just how wide and deep the love of God is for you, well then you're probably invincible. For who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble do it? Or hardship? Or persecution? Or hunger? Or poverty? Or danger? Or death? No. In all these things we have complete victory through him 
who loved us. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below. There is nothing in all of creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8. The other thing to say, and um, I was really struck by Gaynor's lovely image of um, practicing the shoes of peace and skateboarding, uh, just like that. We need to practice with this. You know, a good soldier will be trained in stages. He starts off on the training ground. He builds up to light skirmishes. And then one day, he or she faces the fight of their life. And it's like that for us too. I kind of wondered what it'd be like if over the next seven days you were, as you'd wake up in the morning, you were to wake up and think, oh, here I am, the beloved child of God, worth the death of Jesus Christ. That's how God sees me. Right, I'll make some toast. You know, how would that affect the way you go into the daily battles that you face? And it starts, I think, by encountering all those daily battles and starting with the little wins. And we build up in our strength and our security in God until we are invincible. And yes, we need to live it out. Living lives that reflect our salvation. But let's be clear about this. We're not doing it because we're trying to earn our salvation, because we've already got that, right? Because it's given to us as a free gift from Jesus. It has nothing to do with what we could ever earn or deserve. Martin Luther put it beautifully like this. He said, it is not imitation that makes sons. It is sonship that makes imitators. If we get, truly get, that we are sons and daughters and how our salvation was bought and how he loves us, then yes, we will go out and imitate our heavenly father. We can no longer be Christian streakers who are skimping on the breastplate of righteousness because our response to love is to live in his love. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And if you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. I'm coming into land with this. After realizing that God loves us like that, the next step is to realize that God loves Everyone like that. Not just those who look like me and sound like me, but everyone. We need to live this out in our own personal daily battles, but also out in the bigger global battles where we stand for truth and justice and mercy, where we stand beside the marginalized, the widows and the orphans. This salvation comes freely. It comes abundantly, it comes sacrificially, it comes transformationally. But if we think we can grasp the love of Jesus Christ and it demands nothing of the way we live our lives, then we have not grasped the love of Jesus Christ at all. There are two million, five hundred thousand gigabytes of storage space in your brain and it's still nowhere near enough to fully grasp the way God loves you as demonstrated in salvation. 
when Jesus died on the cross for you. But if we can get our head around grasping something of the reality of the way God loves us, then it will change how we do everything. We're going to come to the table and have communion. It's a lovely way to quietly come before God and acknowledge the cross. I don't know how you're going to respond tonight. I just want to tell you how I am. I'm going to repent of the way I've sidelined the cross so often. How little I've appreciated the enormity of what Jesus did for me. And it's beauty. And it's power. I'm going to ask to be reawakened to the amazing truths contained in my salvation. And the affirmation that is there for me. And I'm going to resolve to stand firm in life's battles. Because I'm a child of God. What about you?